And we're continuing our study through the book of Genesis. For the last nine chapters or so, we've been primarily focused on the story of a man named Abraham. He's called the father of faith. That's what he's known as to Christians. And his life journey mirrors the life journey that God desires each of us to take. A journey where we grow in our relationship with God and along with that comes a growing faith in the goodness of God. And this week we're going to see Abraham display the most radical faith possible. And I really do mean that. It's going to be an extreme, shocking, and powerful event that we're going to be studying today. It's also a favorite for atheists and people who don't believe in the Bible. And when we get there, we will address the obvious elephant in the room, which will be the moral problem seemingly raised by what God is going to ask Abraham to do. But before we get there, we're actually going to just finish up chapter 21 toward the end of it, starting in verse 22. 21 verse 22. You'll recall from a couple of studies ago that when we last left Abraham, he's in Philistine country. He's in pagan territory, hanging out, camping out, and it was ruled by a man who carried the title of Abimelech. And when we last encountered Abimelech, he had been deceived by Abraham out of fear that he would be killed and his beautiful wife stolen from him. Abraham had resorted to claiming that his wife was his sister, which had led Abimelech to take her into his harem. But before he could do anything, he and all the men of his region were made impotent by God and all the women were made barren. Yes, really, I know that's not in any of the children's Bibles you read, but as we studied our way through that, that's what really happened. That's how God protected Abraham's wife because Abraham should never have allowed her to get in that situation. And then the Lord revealed to Abimelech what Abraham had done and unsurprisingly, Abimelech was very ticked off at Abraham and he told him, settle wherever you want in my land, just don't cause any more trouble, please. Suffice to say, Abimelech was not a very big fan of Abraham's the last time they interacted. Now in verse 22, we read this, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, and then underline this sentence, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. So Abimelech observes Abraham for what is likely several years and comes to the conclusion that God is undeniably with Abraham. And so he very wisely says to Abraham, hey, can we make a covenant? Can we make a, a promise agreement, a treaty? And the promise, Abraham, is that you're, you're gonna be honest with me and you're gonna be good to me and my family and you're gonna do that in return for the fact that I've been really hospitable and good to you while you've been in my land. This is a wise move, because this is a man with enough good sense to say, I can tell that this Abraham guy has God on his side. And so whatever the future holds, I wanna be on the same side as the guy who has God on his side. I don't wanna be in the place where I'm lining up against God in any way, shape, or form. As the word of God says, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is a wise move by Abimelech. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. So Abraham says, well, you know, speaking of honesty and transparency, some of your servants have just stolen a well which my household actually dug. This is a drier region and having a well that worked was kind of a big deal. And there's actually a reason from the original language to believe they're talking about a set of seven wells. And Abimelech said, I, I do not know who's done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two of them made a covenant. So what they do, if you'll recall, is this ceremony called cutting covenant. We talked about this back in chapter 15 of Genesis. They basically take these animals, kill them, cut them in half. They walk between this hallway, this passageway of animals cut in half from different ends, meet in the middle, shake hands, and basic agreement is I promise to keep my agreement and we both understand that if either of us breaks it, the other person is going to do to us what we just did to these animals. You're dead meat, basically. That's the idea. So they make this covenant, this cutting covenant together. 
Verse 28, and Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Beersheba can mean well of the covenant or well of the seven. It can mean either of those. So in addition to the cattle that Abraham used to cut covenant, he gives him these seven ewe lambs, which I think is likely representing the seven wells. And Abraham says, these ones are gonna live just as a reminder that I'm the one that dug this well. There will be a visual reminder to you to keep your promise to me. Verse 32. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. There is one big lesson from this little section of scripture right here, and I want you to make a note of this. The lesson is that the only way to rebuild spiritual credibility is by displaying consistent character over time. The only way to rebuild spiritual credibility is by displaying consistent character over time. You see, when we last met Abraham, he had really blown his testimony with Abimelech. He had brought sickness and pain and trouble to the whole territory because he had been a liar to Abimelech. And Abimelech had, had no interest in anything Abraham had to say at that time. Abraham had lost all credibility. He couldn't witness. But as Abraham went about living his life, Abimelech was watching. And day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, Abimelech's attitude toward Abraham began to change and he ended up saying, you know, I've been watching you, Abraham, and I've changed my opinion about you. You're someone I want to do business with. You're someone I want to make a covenant with. I'm not totally convinced, but I can't deny that you're one who walks with God or more importantly, God walks with you. You see, when we blow it and we lose our spiritual credibility with someone, the solution is never to rant about all the reasons that they should start trusting us again. The solution is never to demand that our loved ones trust us or insist that enough time has passed that they should trust us now. The solution is not to get angry when they don't trust us. The solution is to realize that part of repentance means accepting the consequences of our sin humbly. And when we've blown it spiritually, we need to accept that we've damaged our credibility with others. And that's going to take time to rebuild. And you'll notice that Abraham never shows up in front of Abimelech and says, hey, just wanted to see if we could maybe restart this relationship. I've been doing well for a while and let's see how it's going. He just waits for Abimelech to come to him and say, you know, I've seen a change. I've seen who you really are, Abraham. And sometimes in our lives, it, it takes time. It takes time to rebuild spiritual credibility. And we don't like it because I've yet to meet the person who enjoys waiting for anything, ever. We don't like to do that. But it takes showing consistent character over time to rebuild spiritual credibility. So if you've blown it with someone, you've blown it in a relationship, just be encouraged with that. It takes time, but every day that you show consistent character, you are rebuilding that spiritual credibility. It can be done, it just takes time. And that's what Abraham did here. Now going into chapter 22, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read through this next portion of text and I'm gonna explain it as we go. And we're gonna address what's gonna be the obvious elephant in the room, because this is gonna be a wild story. When you read this at face value and you should read it at face value the first time, it's a wild story. And then we're gonna talk about how this applies to our lives in the area of faith. So let's jump in. Let's just find out what this shocking text is gonna say. Verse one, chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Moriah was about a three or four day journey away. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now you gotta understand, if you've never read this story, you're new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible. Can you put yourself in that position? This is a disturbing, disturbing story at first reading. It's not an allegory. It's not a fable or a myth or a legend to make a point. It's every bit as disturbing as it sounds, which is why it's a favorite target for atheists and those who don't believe in the Bible. They make some points that are, at least on the surface, very valid. Namely, what kind of God would ask his faithful follower to commit child sacrifice for him? And what kind of crazy person would believe that it was God speaking to him when he had that idea pass through his head? Some very, very valid questions and issues, and I think we need to start by addressing them. And there's two truths that will dramatically change the way you understand this text. And I'm going to ask you to make a note of them, and then we're going to unpack this together to see how this works out. Firstly, we need to understand that Abraham's offering of Isaac prophetically foreshadowed the Father's offering of Jesus. It prophetically foreshadowed the Father's offering of Jesus. In the book of Hosea, this verse is on your outlines. The Lord himself said, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. The idea behind that last phrase is one that we've talked about before. In the Old Testament, God used parts of certain people's lives to prophetically foreshadow future events. In other words, God would make sure that part of their life was recorded in the Bible and it would provide a pattern that would be repeated in the future by somebody else, very often Jesus. For example, men like Moses, Joshua, and David would all have parts of their lives recorded in the Bible that would serve as prophetic patterns for the life and ministry of Jesus when he came to the earth. They pointed to Jesus prophetically. Abraham was also one of those men, and never more than here in Genesis 22. And you might recall that back in Genesis 20 verse 7, God himself told Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet, the first prophet mentioned in the Bible. 
And that's what's going on here. God is using Abraham and Isaac in this chapter as a symbol to prophesy about something that's going to happen in the future. We're going to see some amazing similarities between Isaac and Jesus in the text, but I'll give you just a few to get us started. They were both miracle births. Jesus was born of a virgin, while Isaac was born to a woman who was 90 years old. Both of them were named by the Lord before they were born. God told both sets of parents the specific name to call both Isaac and Jesus. They were both promised and prophesied to come. And then they both ended up taking longer to arrive than anybody thought they would. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth as a man. And around 25 years between the time God promised Isaac to Abraham and his wife Sarah and the time she actually gave birth to him. Both of them were only begotten sons. God and the Bible do not recognize Ishmael to be Abraham's son. And we've talked about the reasons for this over the past few studies. Now the second thing that you need to know when reading this text, make a note of this, is that Abraham knew that he would return with Isaac alive and well. He knew that he would return with Isaac alive and well. In Galatians 3, the apostle Paul writes, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Here's what that means. The guy who wrote that, the Apostle Paul, tells us that Abraham understood that God's plan of salvation, God's plan for the earth, flowed through him and then through his son Isaac. And we'll see that Abraham was so completely convinced of this in faith that no matter how things played out on Mount Moriah, he knew that Isaac would be alive and well at the end of the day. He knew it. He knew it. So keeping those two points in mind, let's read through this text again. We'll go back to verse 1, but let's see what we can begin to pick up in the text here. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son. Now underline your only son, Isaac, and then underline whom you love. Just as John 3.16 tells us that the father gave his only begotten son. Then he goes on and he says, and go to the land of Moriah, underline the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The land of Moriah is the area where Jerusalem exists and has always existed. We don't really know how built up it was at this time in history, but we do know this is where Jerusalem is located. Moriah is actually a ridge that runs all the way through Jerusalem, through the old city, and then up a hill on the north side, and it peaks on that hill a couple of hundred feet outside the old city gate in only a couple of hundred feet elevation. It's really a hill, even though it's known as Mount Moriah. And God tells Abraham that he is to go and offer his son in that specific area. It has to be that area. But not only does it have to be that area, it has to be a very specific mountain in that area which God was going to show Abraham. Now why would it need to be so specific? I think we're going to get a clue in verse 4 in just a second, so let's keep reading. Verse 3, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, underline third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and, and then underline, saw the place afar off. So understand this. Abraham is able to see the specific mountain, quote, afar off. So he can see it from a long, long way away. That means there was something distinct about it that made it distinguishable from a distance. Jesus was crucified on a mountainside of Jerusalem on a very specific mountain known as Golgotha. This is what the Gospels tell us. And those same Gospels tell us that Golgotha means place of a skull. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can go to the place where historians and Bible scholars believe Jesus was crucified, this Mount of Golgotha. And when you look at it, you will see 
two inset areas forming two eye sockets, the shape of a skull appearing very, very distinctly. It's impossible to miss when you look at it even to this day. And so when you put all this together, knowing that this mountain was in the area that would become Jerusalem, and God said, you gotta go to that specific area, when you add the fact that God said, not just that, but in that area, it's gotta be a very, very specific mountain. When you understand that this whole tale is gonna foreshadow the crucifixion of Jesus, when you know that Abraham was able to see it and immediately go, that must be it, from a distance, it all points to this Mount Moriah that Abraham and Isaac are headed to being the very same place where Jesus would be crucified. In verse four, we're also told that it was on the third day that they reached this mountain. Abraham was told by God to do this the day before they left on their journey, meaning that for Abraham, his son was reckoned as, was considered to be as good as dead for how long? Three days. Three days, just as the Lord was reckoned to be dead for three days in the grave. In verse five it says, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And then underline this, and what does it say? We will come back to you. You see, Abraham and Isaac, the father and the son, say to the two servants who are with them, this is something only we can do. You guys can't come any further. You're not, you're not gonna be a part of this. No one else is coming up this mountain. Just as the work that Jesus did on the cross was done between him and the Father. There was nothing that we can do or could have done to earn our salvation. It's the gift of God earned on our behalf entirely by the sacrifice of Jesus and the kindness of the Father. And I once touched on this in a sermon years ago when my, my son Noah was eight or nine at the time listened to my message, and then afterwards he pointed out to me, he said, hey dad, did you notice that uh, Abraham told his servants, we will come back to you, both of them? And so you see, Abraham was absolutely convinced. He knew, remember, he knew he was going up that mountain to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, but he believed that he was gonna return with his son Isaac alive and well. We're told why he had this belief in Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, it's on your outlines. It says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, and then underline this, concluding or reasoning that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So here's what that's telling us. Abraham received a promise from God that he would have a countless number of descendants and they would come through the line of Isaac. And so Abraham concluded, he reasoned in his mind, whatever happens on this mountain, Mount Moriah, God cannot keep his promise to me if Isaac is dead. And so if God's gonna offer me to sacrifice him by killing him, God must have a plan to raise him from the dead. That's the only explanation because there's no scenario in which God fails to keep his promise. That's not an option. There's no scenario in which God breaks his word and doesn't keep his promise. So in order for God to keep his promise, my son's gotta be alive. So if he's gonna die up there, I guess he's coming back from the dead as well. He knew that he was coming down with his son. Verse six, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went and then underlined together, together. That word together tells us that just as Jesus walked through his earthly life together in fellowship with his heavenly father, Isaac walked up that mountain in fellowship and closeness together with his father Abraham. And both Isaac and Jesus had wood laid on their backs by their father ultimately. Isaac the wood for the burnt offering and Jesus the cross. Verse seven, but Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Underline the word lamb. Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? So when we're told that this is a type of sacrifice that, that calls for a lamb, 
based on what the Old Testament law says, that means this would have been an offering for sin, an offering for sins. Just as Jesus, the Lamb of God, would die as a sacrifice for all sin, for all time. Verse 8, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide, now underline this whole phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now get this, this, this is huge. There's a mistranslation in your Bibles, in all likelihood. The literal translation of what Abraham says should not include the word for. If that's in your Bible, cross that word for out. It should actually be rendered like this. Abraham answered, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see, inspired by God, Abraham tells his son that not only will God provide the lamb, but God himself will be that lamb which is provided. Then we read, so the two of them went together. Again, underline that word together. They're walking in agreement on this, Abraham and Isaac. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood, underline upon the wood, just as Jesus would be laid upon the wooden cross and nailed to it before being lifted up, Isaac was laid upon the wood of the altar. And many people read this, and thanks to things like illustrations in the children's Bibles we read perhaps when we were younger, we're presented with the image of a child who doesn't want to do this, who doesn't understand what's happening. And so through tears, Abraham is to tie him up and, and restrain him and, and put him on the altar, but that's completely inaccurate. It's completely inaccurate. In reality, Isaac is at minimum, at minimum, an older teenager who could have easily overpowered his father, who's likely more than 120 at this time. In fact, when you see everything we see in this section of Scripture, by the time we're done, I think you'll probably agree with my speculation that Isaac was in fact 33 years old, the exact same age Jesus was when he went to the cross. When you see words in this text like lad, the original word that's used there does not imply that it's a kid at all. It's a youthful man, a young man is the idea, but a man nonetheless. So remember that, that several years passed between Abraham entering Abimelech's territory and the time they made the covenant that we just read about in Genesis 21. And then we read in the last verse of chapter 21 that after they made the covenant, Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days, many days. And then here in chapter 22, verse 1, it says, after these things, meaning that even more time had passed. We learned that Isaac is old enough to make a, a pretty dangerous three or four day journey through the wilderness, caring for his father in the process. And then in verse six, we saw that Isaac was the one who carried all the wood up the mountain on his back. And this was enough wood to fully burn up to nothing a lamb. So this is not a, not a couple of branches. This is a huge, heavy load of wood. And Isaac's big enough to carry that all the way up a mountain on his back. When you put it all together, you realize that Isaac was at an age where he, he could have easily overpowered his father if he wanted to. And, and the point is that he didn't. He didn't overpower his father. And he was willingly bound up and willingly laid on the altar. He submitted to his father. He trusted his father even with his life. Speaking of his life, Jesus said, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. It's the same idea. They both did it willingly. Nobody, not even the father, forced Jesus to lay down his life. He chose to do it just as Isaac chose to trust his father and lay down his life. Verse 10, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the, underline the angel of the Lord, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, just a side note, it's fascinating how many times in Scripture we notice that God has to say a man's name twice in order to get his attention. Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul. Apparently if he said it once, they'd be like, Abraham. Abraham is, I think, the idea here. As we've talked about before, when the Bible refers to the angel of the Lord, singular, 
It's a reference to Jesus. And that's who's speaking to Abraham here. So he, Abraham, said, here I am. And he, Jesus, said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, and then underline your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Underline the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You know, every detail in the Bible matters. There's no mistakes in the Bible. Everything is on purpose. And I want to see if you notice something here in this story. What did God provide? What got caught in the thicket? A a ram. A ram with an R. Even though the Lord inspired Abraham to tell Isaac what? God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. At this time, the Lord doesn't offer a lamb. He offers a ram. Why? So that when we read this, we would understand that what Abraham was talking about is not fulfilled in Genesis 22 here. He's not talking about the ram that they found in the thicket. He's speaking prophetically, probably without even realizing it, about Jesus. The one who hundreds and hundreds of years later would fulfill those words of Abraham when John the Baptist looked upon him and cried out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just when it seemed like death was inevitable, when the knife was hovering over Isaac, the Lord moved and provided a way for something else to die in his place. Just as when it seemed like death was inevitable for you and I, that there was no hope, the Father sent Jesus to die in our place. And indeed it was on that very mountain, the mountain Abraham called the Lord will provide, that the Lord provided salvation for you and I through the body and blood of Jesus. In verse 15, we read then, the, again, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, there it is again, your only son. That's redundant on purpose. Now I love this, starting in verse 17, it's just the blessings that Abraham is going to get because he's done this and that Isaac is going to get too. Blessing I will bless you multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed that seed singular speaking of Jesus in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba God says, because you trusted me with something so precious, the life of your only son, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, in more ways than you can imagine. The whole world is going to be blessed through the one that's going to come through your family line. And in that, I can't help but hear a very similar response to what the father's response was to his son, Jesus, who who obeyed him all the way to death on a cross. In Philippians 2, on your outlines, it says this about Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Lord blessed and honored Abraham for his faith and trust so how much more will the Father bless and honor his only begotten son Jesus because of his faith? and trust in going to the cross. In verse 18, the Lord told Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. And then in Revelation 5, when the church has been taken to be with Jesus in heaven, we read this about Jesus. It says, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood 
out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And then finally, I love, I love that one of the blessings given to Abraham in verse 18 is that the Lord says, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And to his bride, the church, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I love that. You see, the prophetic parallels are undeniable and the, the level of detail in these prophetic parallels is absolutely mind-blowing. It's all written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came to the earth. And while the story seems disturbing at first, we need to remember that Isaac was a man who acted out of his own free will. We need to remember that Abraham knew he would come down from that mountain with his son alive and well. We need to remember that God didn't actually make him go through with it. And we also need to remember that all this pointed ahead prophetically to Jesus' sacrifice on the hill of Golgotha. And now you might be thinking, I I hear all that, Jeff. I'm tracking with you. But it's still really disturbing. I mean, how, how awful must this have been for Abraham as a dad. How, how awful must it have been for, for him to think that he's about to thrust that knife into his son's chest and kill him? How, how awful must it have been for Isaac to stare down death like that? And you'd be right. It was awful. It was disturbing. And that, that's by design because what this text does is it helps you and I Understand the awful position that our heavenly father was in when he had to offer up his only begotten son whom he loved and when Jesus went to face death on the cross. There's no other passage in scripture that that puts us inside the heart and mind of the father the way that Genesis 22 does. Because we we sometimes think about this and we think, oh, it couldn't have been that bad because, you know, God knew that everything was going to work out. The Father knew where all this was going to go. He knew Jesus would be raised from the dead again. It wasn't that bad. But but when we read Genesis 22, suddenly we relate to Abraham and we think that that, that's unthinkable. I couldn't even imagine doing that to to my own kid. And that's exactly the effect it's supposed to have on us. God the Father had to devise a plan with his son to kill his son. That's what he had to do. And in the time when his son most needed comfort, the father would have to be pouring out his wrath on his son and turning his back on him. That's what happened on the cross. The punishment that that every sin, past, present, and future deserves, was stored up in a cup, so to speak, that was then poured out on Jesus by the father. And being covered in our sins, the the father couldn't have any relationship with his son in that moment. To the degree that he couldn't even look upon him in that moment. Because Jesus had literally become our sin. And he had to listen as he didn't look at him, couldn't look at him. Had to listen as his only begotten son hung there, dying completely alone. Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the moment where he wanted to intervene the most, the father restrained himself and allowed his son to die as they had planned before the foundation of the world. There was no other substitute to be found. There was no ram caught in a bush at the last second. Jesus was the substitute. He was the substitute. And he actually went through with it. You see, our heavenly father actually went through with it. It's heartbreaking, it's gut-wrenching, it's disturbing, and that's the point of Genesis 22, that we would understand that. Make a note of this. Genesis 22 helps us understand the pain and heartache experienced by the Father when his son Jesus died on the cross. It helps us understand the pain and heartache experienced by the Father. And when we understand what God has been through to save us, we, we won't take it lightly. We can't. It's impossible to actually understand it and take it lightly. At the end of all this, there's not a quick and easy answer for the atheist who wants to make accusations about God in this text because you really have to understand it. 
Like the message of the cross, Genesis 22 is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is it's the power of God. It's the power of God. One other observation about all this. We've talked many times about the fact that, that faith builds upon faith. We trust God with something that enables us to grow in our faith so that we can trust him with something even bigger next time. And that is the key to understanding how Abraham could possibly have been able to trust God to this extreme degree because I know you're like me and you're thinking deep down, there's no way that I could do that. There's no way. I don't think we even go up the mountain. I don't think we even pack and start that journey if God asked me to do this. The difference is that Abraham had been through more faith steps, more faith tests, more faith preparation than you or I have. He had been through more than 50 years of preparation, starting back in Genesis 12, by God, designed specifically to lead up to this moment, to this faith test. Because the truth is that God will never put you or I in a situation. He'll never put us in a test. He'll never put us in a trial that he hasn't thoroughly prepared us for that we might navigate it successfully. We couldn't do what Abraham did because we haven't been prepared like Abraham was prepared. Write this down. God will never put us in a trial that he has not thoroughly prepared us to navigate successfully. If you're in a trial, then God's prepared you for it. I guarantee it. Kari Ten Boom, the, the Christian hero who came out of World War II, the story of incredible faith, answered a question that I, I had many times where I would just think, man, these, these Christians who were martyred for their faith, fed to the lions, burned at the stake, I'd, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could do that. And Kari Ten Boom famously said, she said, you know, I've realized that you are not given dying grace by God until you need dying grace. That's when it shows up. That's how it works in our lives. There are many of us in this room going through things, enduring things, that if we all knew about them, we'd say, I, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I could get over that. But the thing is, God gave you, if you're in that situation, the tests and the experience to get through that test. He prepared you for that test. And the tests that you're going to face, face in the future, God's preparing you now for them. He's never going to put you in a situation he hasn't prepared you for. You remember even that Abraham believed the promises of God for Ishmael's life. So when chapter 22 came around, he was ready to believe the promises of God for Isaac's life. You'll recall that he sent Ishmael and his mom Hagar away with almost no provisions into the desert. And he did that in faith because he had a promise from God that Ishmael too would become a great nation. So he said, that can't happen if he dies in the wilderness. So I know God's going to take care of him. That was the final step really in preparing him to have faith that God would also take care of his other son, Isaac. Faith builds upon faith. If you or I want to become people of great faith, and I hope we all do. The key is to start trusting God with the things that he's asking us to trust him with today. The key is not to think, how, how can I get the faith to believe God through cancer? You don't even need to think about that. You just need to say yes to God in the things that he's asking you to trust him for today. That's it. He's not going to ask you to move a mountain when you're still at the kindergarten level of faith. But he will stretch your faith wherever you're at. He will take you higher. So start agreeing with God where you are today. So if your faith is just getting started, if your faith has been getting stagnant, ask that question, how is God asking me to trust him today? And then whatever it is, just, just say, yes, Lord. And then you just repeat that process until you die. That's how it works over and over and over again. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, to bigger and bigger and bigger things. And by the time you reach the end of your life, suddenly you realize that you're trusting God for things that other people think are impossible because God did that in your life. Faith builds upon faith, builds upon faith, builds upon faith. And now we wrap up in verse 20 with this little section of names. And, and if you think there's no good names for kids in the Bible, there's some real original names in this list just to inspire you. 
strange passage. It says, now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, indeed, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, whose, there's a good one, his firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram. I read this next one and I was like, Cheesehead? Cheesehead? Chized, Hatzo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah, underline Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Geham, Thahash, and Machach. I'll just go with that pronunciation. Nobody's going to challenge me on that anyway. Now, this seemingly strange and out-of-place passage is here for only one reason. One reason. To introduce Rebekah, who is going to go on to become the bride of Isaac. And while we're going to get into that more in the coming weeks, I'm going to let you know right now that prophetically, if you haven't figured this out yet today, Isaac is a type of Jesus. He's a prophetic pattern of Jesus. Rebekah, his bride, is going to be a type of, any guesses, the church, the church, the bride of Christ, which is why it's only after the sacrifice on Mount Moriah that Rebekah appears in our story. It was only after Calvary that the church appeared. And Rebekah will not be a Jewish bride, but rather a Gentile bride, just as the church is primarily made up of non-Jewish, Gentile believers. And if you pay attention to the text in Genesis, you're going to notice that right after the sacrifice on Mount Moriah, Isaac is going to be hidden from view. He's not going to show up again in the story until, until it's time for him to take his bride, Rebecca. Just as Jesus is out of view right now with the Father in heaven until, until he comes for his bride, the church. And can I give you one more spoiler because I just couldn't help myself when I was prepping this? Here's one more spoiler. Isaac is not going to go to his bride. His bride is going to be brought to him. Just as the church is going to be taken to be with Jesus. What did Jesus tell his disciples in John 14? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus comes for his church, it's going to be so that he can take his church to be where he is, and that's going to take place in the event known as the rapture. The highest mountain, the highest mountain ever climbed was not Mount Everest, but Mount Moriah, Golgotha, the hill of Calvary. Jesus did not ascend carrying a backpack of supplies, but carrying the cross and the sins of the whole world. And upon reaching the summit, he wasn't rewarded with victory, but with death. No man has ever climbed higher. No man's ever shouldered a greater burden than Jesus did for you and me. And if you understand that, if you understand that, that I don't have to ask you to give your life to Jesus. I don't have to try and exhort you to live for him. If you understand that, then the only response is to give him all of you. That, that's it. That's it. He asks for our whole life, and we couldn't even dream of offering him any less. And so if you understand that, and, and you understand that he's good, then, then trust him. Take him at his word. Believe him. Say yes to the Lord, whatever that means in your life right now. Wherever you know he's asking you to trust him in your life right now, say yes to him if you understand what he's done for you. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much just for the wonder of your word. Lord, we, uh, we just marvel at it that hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even walked the earth, you laid out in detail what was going to take place at Calvary. That your precious only begotten son whom you love would take upon himself the sins of the whole world. Everything that 
I've ever done, everything I'm doing, everything I'll ever do. He took it all upon himself and took the punishment for it, took your wrath that I deserve, that, that should have gone to me so that I could be given the gift of salvation. And so that instead of having to fear standing before the Lord, I could look forward to it as what will be the greatest moment of my life. Thank you for doing that, Lord. Thank you for loving us in a, in a way that, that words are not adequate to describe. Thank you for loving us that way, Lord. And so, Father, we know that, that what you've asked is for our whole life, and so we gladly offer it to you. We trust you, God. May we say yes to you in whatever way you're asking us to right now. May we stand in faith, agreeing with your word, and believing that there's no trial that we're in that you have not thoroughly prepared us for. And so we say even now in faith, Lord, we thank you that you've equipped us for the trials that we're in, for the challenges that we're facing. You've provided everything that we need in you and through you and through what you've already brought us for. So Lord, would you, would you stir to our minds for those of us who need it today all the ways you've taken care of us in the past, the miracles we've seen, the lives that we have seen turned around, the hopeless situations that we've already seen reversed by your grace and goodness, the work you've done in us, Lord God. And may we testify that, yeah, you'll do it again. We believe it, Lord. We believe it. Just be still before the Lord and just open your heart to him. Allow him to speak to you and just say, Lord, what do you want to say to me in this moment? Let him speak to you. And if he calls you to trust him in a specific area, say yes. Say yes. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.